After decades of reporting from Israel for NBC News, Martin Fletcher found that the summer break he took to walk the entire Mediterranean coastline of Israel shined an entirely new light on the people and the history of the Middle East. When you think of what happened there, the events of the Bible, Alexander the Great, the Crusaders, Saladin, the Ottoman Turks, Napoleon, Israel today, of course, you know, there's no hundred miles in the world that compares in, in fascination. And the former Paris bureau chief for the New York Times reveals what she realized about the French, that their lifelong dedication to flirting seems to enhance their self-confidence. It's the kind of place where men of all ages look at women of all ages, and we're not used to that in America. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, two foreign correspondents reveal the backstories on the culture they've been living in to help us better understand contemporary tensions in Israel and how Parisians make playing the game of life so seductive. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. One summer, journalist Martin Fletcher took a hike and discovered the essence of the Middle East. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, he'll explain how his 100-mile walk along the Mediterranean coast of Israel taught him more about the people of that region than 30 years of reporting as an American TV correspondent. He joins us a little later in the hour. Elaine Sciolino is also an American journalist with a keen eye for detail. When she moved to Paris, she quickly learned that her American approach to getting information doesn't always work in France. She joined us by phone a while back from her Paris home to tell us about her favorite hidden gardens in France. Today, Elaine returns to share with us what she's uncovered about the seductive French psyche in her new book. Elaine, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me once again. You're a longtime Paris correspondent, right? Former bureau chief for the New York Times in Paris? Yes, that's right. I moved there with my husband and my two children in 2002, and my children went off to college, and my husband and I have stayed. Now, how, as an American, do you know enough about this very complicated, subtle side of the French culture to help us not be frustrated by it? I had the advantage of studying French history in graduate school, and then I lived in France once before in the late 1970s as a very young and single journalist. So I sort of built it all together and created this confection that is uh, constructed out of years and years of gathering uh, little bits and pieces of a mosaic. So you understand the French culture, and as an American, you can share it with us. The subtitle of your book How the French Play the Game of Life. What do you mean by that? I wanted to show that seduction is a driving force in all of French life. And we in America think of seduction and we tend to think about sex. In France, seduction infuses all aspects of French life. It infuses French history, French culture, French food, perfume, fashion, politics, even foreign policy. You could have a a cover story at a magazine on King Henry IV, and it'll say, you know, King Henry IV, the leader, the seducer. So the seducer doesn't mean he's just laying every woman in the court. It means he is effective well, in, at charming people to get his way? Yes, but in the case of Henry IV, it was both. <laughs> How have you been seduced in a non-sexual way in Paris? I had to learn to change my whole way of operating. Most of my journalistic career was as either a diplomatic reporter or national security correspondent. I covered the CIA. I've covered terrorism trials where the goal is to get information, to get it quickly, to get it accurately and put it into the New York Times. Suddenly, I'm confronted with a very loose subject and elusive subject and I had to learn process. I had to learn to take my time. I had to learn that the information wasn't going to come in the beginning of the interview. It was going to come at the end. So it required an investment of effort and time and, and using different journalistic muscles than I had been using for most of my years as, as a journalist. I had to learn to keep the notebook in my handbag uh, for about 15, 20 minutes, to not ask questions frontally, and to play. And when I say play, I mean play with conversation, to learn to banter. I had to learn how to joke. I mean, here I am of right. Sicilian origin. We Sicilians don't joke. And so suddenly I had to learn <laughs> how to joke and joke in a different language, too. Okay, so you played the seduction game as a journalist and you did it effectively. How have you been seduced in a sexual way in Paris? 
<laughs> I am a happily married woman. I no, I don't mean know. I don't mean uh, <laughs> cheating on your husband. I'm just talking about is that a part of life in in Paris? Because my experience is it's a very seductive, in a sexual way, place. Well, it's the kind of place where men of all ages look at women of all ages, and we're not used to that in America. Once you you hit fifty in America, guys stop looking at you. In France, you you know you walk down the street and there's a woman who's 60, 70 years old and you look at her and you know that she feels good about herself. Wow. You know she feels beautiful and you just want to follow her down the street because you can just get a whiff of her beautiful perfume. So workmen paying attention to or whistling at a passing woman in America and workmen doing the same in France, are you saying it's two different things? Well, you're, you're referring to an anecdote in the book where a friend of mine who's an extremely elegant, beautiful French woman in her mid-50s chastised me for wearing gym clothes to go out to buy a pound of butter. And she says, I always get dressed up even to go out and buy a baguette. And she puts on high heels and um, makeup and does her hair. And I said, well, why in the world would you do that? And she says, on ne sait jamais. You know, one never knows. <laughs> and I said, well, one never knows what, Sophie Caroline? And she said, well, one never knows if you'll pass the window washer and he'll whistle at you. And I'm thinking, why in the world would you want the window washer to whistle at you? Because in America, we're conditioned to to keep a distance from that kind of remark or reaction from a guy. All these years of our American feminism has taught us that we don't want to be treated like a piece of meat. Right. So that degrading aspect of the whistle in America might not be degrading to a French woman? Some of my best friends would would just be delighted to have, to be whistled at, yes. But, you know, I think this is one of the reasons why Americans love to go to France, because (laughs) they can enter this other world. We can pretend to be French. We can enjoy the process and the pleasure They're into that word, pleasure. You know, there's a fundamental cultural difference here. You talk about it beautifully in your book. Perfume, gardens, wine, the French um, passion for pleasure. Well, it's the word plaisir, which when we think of pleasure, we probably either think of like a pleasure cruise or pleasure in sex. But pleasure is much broader than that in French. A meal, for example, is not just sitting down at a table and eating. It's thinking about what you're going to cook. Then it's going to the market and looking at what's in the market and choosing it. And it's it's negotiating with the different people at the market about what's good that day. Then it's bringing it home. Then it's cooking it. And then, of course, it's eating it. But then after eating it, you have to talk about what you ate and how it differs from the last time you ate whatever it is. And sometimes there's a nap. Now, obviously, this doesn't happen every day, but it happens enough in French life and even in very simple French life that we Americans can appreciate it when we're there, but it is a very different kind of event and exercise than what we're used to. In a way, it's like a great equalizer and an expertise in taking pleasure in simple things, a walk in the garden, a glass of wine at a corner cafe, a, a conversation. It's a beautiful thing about France, I think. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Elaine Chalino, and her new book is La Seduction, or in French... La seduction. <laughs> you sure you don't have a glass of red wine? <laughs> that does help when you're in France. That does help. We were talking about this different approach to these pleasures, and a lot of people mistake sex for just getting into bed, it seems like. In France, I get the sense that there's more to sex than, than simply scoring. It's just a way of life, and there's people who never, ever will end up in bed with each other that have this sort of dalliance going on, just in a daily sort of rhythm of their life. Can you talk about that a little bit? I happened to be watching a Sex in the City episode last night on television because right now I'm in the United States, and it must have been an early episode. And it absolutely struck me in a very dramatic way that there was this one scene where it was all about the the event, And it wasn't about the before and it wasn't about the after. It was all about, okay, we had the event and was the event itself good or bad? It's very different in France. The anticipation of the event is much more important and the remembrance afterwards. I have a young French friend who had a bit of a dalliance. It never led to anything, but with a guy who uh, invited her over for a party and she went and she left her scarf there. And months later, he brought it back, and he had spritzed it with his perfume so that she couldn't forget him. Oh, now that, 
that is very French, it seems like. <laughs> when we're talking about this, I think, like in Spain, you have riveting eye contact. You have the technique with the right. fan and the sultry flamenco dancing. And in France, you've got le regard, the look. The look. The, the look is much more important in France than it is in the United States. How many of us as Americans, particularly during our first trip to France, but Paris more specifically, are walking down the street and you accidentally bump into someone and you want to sort of smile and the person gives you this stare? Or that you're walking past a cafe and everybody's eyes are staring at you and you think, these people are so rude, they're staring at me. Or in the metro, they stare. But in France, the stare is really a kind of visual embrace. It goes back to the time of the troubadours where men and women of the court were forbidden to talk to each other, but they could express their feelings with just one look. And it's something that still exists today. Now, that's powerful. Well, it's also interesting because you can say everything in a look, but you can deny that the look ever took place. Yes. And there's no simple winking or any of that kind of stuff. It's just... Winking uh, is out. Winking is out. The father of my French researcher told her only whores wink. It's, it's much too blatant. And smiling is complicated, too. A lot of Americans misread the lack of a smile in, in France, don't they? Yes, and the French, when they come to the United States and everybody's smiling at them all the time, it's, it's sort of like the visual version of have a good day yeah. because the French think oh. that you don't really mean it. You have to earn a smile. A smile only comes with a complicity and a closeness. And the word. Americans have a, a kind of a harsh sound to the language, and I notice in France there's something almost like a caress just with the sound of, of the voice. If you have a voice like you do, you know, if you have a really good radio voice. You can have anything in France. Really? Just, just to let you know. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> You've just complicated my life miserably. And, but oh, I, I didn't I noted, say what. It might be oh, a three-star yeah. meal. You oh, know, that's or, good. The, yeah. But the Americans need to pay attention to that. They don't need to be just standing on the outside. They can get into that voice. They can get into that eye contact. Elaine, I love the way you start your book, La Seduction, with a description of how Jacques Chirac, the president of France, kissed your hand. Recount that for us. Tell us what he wanted and, and what you felt. I went in to see Jacques Chirac for an interview in 2002, shortly after I had become Paris bureau chief. And I went in with the foreign editor at the time, Roger Cohen. It was a very, very serious moment in U.S.-French relations. We had a huge dispute with France over Iraq. This was a real hardball interview. And Chirac you know, gripped Roger's hand, shook it, and then he cradled mine like a piece of porcelain from his collection and, and kissed it. And I was unsettled. It, I was déstabilisé, as one says in French. I thought, does this man take me seriously or is he trying to charm me? And you were playing the game of life on French terms. Well, it was only afterwards that I thought, what is going on here? Well, this is the challenge for all of us when we enjoy and embrace French culture. Elaine Chalino, thank you so much, and best wishes with your book, La Seduction. Thank you so much, Rick. Elaine Chiolino also has her own website, elainechiolino.com. Her last name spelled S-C-I-O-L-I-N-O. We also have guest links in the radio details at ricksteves.com. In a moment, NBC foreign correspondent Martin Fletcher explains what he discovered by slowing down from his usual reporting style and hiking the entire coastline of Israel. He's next on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Jambo Nyote, Nasafiri, now Rick Steves. I'm Tom Simpson from San Francisco, California, and that was Swahili for Hello everybody, I travel with Rick Steves. I'm Jambo Nyote, Nasafiri, now Rick Steves. 
There's a lot of hikes you can take along the Mediterranean coastline, and one I had never considered until just now was Walking the Length of Israel. Martin Fletcher did just that in two weeks, and he's written a book called Walking Israel, A Personal Search for the Soul of a Nation. Mr. Fletcher is a special correspondent for NBC News, based in New York and Israel, former NBC bureau chief in Tel Aviv, spent 30 years as a foreign correspondent, and kind of capped it all off with this incredible hike. Martin Fletcher, thanks for joining us. Rick, thanks very much for having me. I got the sense that you spent a lot of years in Israel doing business, and you realized, hey, now it's time to connect with the people. Well, that's true, you know, because as a news correspondent for an American network, so much of what we do is focused on the the conflict, you know, Israel's war with the Palestinians. But there's a whole different story there, and that's what I wanted to show, the other side of that story. You kind of mentioned that if you actually get away from the interior, you get away from all that hot news, and you find yourself just on hot beaches. Great beaches, too, absolutely. Well, look, the thing is this, the... When the world looks at Israel, we see that nation in conflict basically focusing on a line to the east of the Green Line, the West Bank, you know, the occupation, the settlements, the fighting. But if you walk on down another north-south line, the coastline, it's a whole different country. Now, you subtitled your book, A Personal Search for the Soul of a Nation. What did you mean by that? Ah, well, nothing. (laughs) I tell you what, the publishers chose that subtitle. And personally, frankly, I hate it. And I had always wanted my son to come with me on, the, uh, on my hike down the coast. And I, the title I had was The Father, the Son, and the Holy Coast. That Ooh. was what I wanted. Now, I'd buy that. <laughs> that sounds like lots of fun. But your son didn't, wasn't able to make it with you. My son couldn't make it. The publisher didn't like it. And we ended <laughs> up with a personal search for the soul of a nation. Of course, everybody says, so did you find the soul? Right. You and can, the answer, of course, is no. <laughs> you're burdened with that one, aren't you? Well, I hope it's, I hope it's worth it in, in book sales. But you ended up doing this walk absolutely alone then. It took you two weeks. It's about like walking the length of Long Island, right? Well, you know, it's only 110 miles long, the entire coast of Israel, the length of Long Island. But, you know, it has to be, without any doubt, the most interesting 100 miles in the world, I think. You know, when you think of what happened there, the events of the Bible, Alexander the Great, the Crusaders, um, Saladin, the Ottoman Turks, Napoleon, Israel today, of course. You know, there's no hundred miles in the world that, that compares in, in fascination. So as you were walking, you felt like you could lace together centuries of history from all different ages. Well, that's what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to show how the past reflects the present. You know, when I did the walk, I brought three books with me, the Bible, an eyewitness account by a crusader who writing a thousand years ago and one of Napoleon's officers writing a couple of hundred years ago. So the book's full of anecdotes and historical details, but mostly it focuses on Israel today and what today can learn from the past. With those three books, you've got just a good example of the incredible historic diversity on that 100-mile hike. Yeah, and geographically it's beautiful too. And of course, it's a way of looking at Israel that we just don't see in the media for the most part because we focus on the conflict. Well, let's talk about that. What's the biggest misperception people might have about the land of Israel if all you ever did was look at TV news? Well, I mean, almost everybody that goes there has, has a friend who says, hey, why are you going there? Isn't it dangerous? You know, everybody says that. I mean, people are always calling me up, viewers, friends of friends, saying, hey, is it safe to visit Israel? And I say, of course it is. Then they come, and then a week later they call me up again, and they say, wow, what a great place. I had no idea. So that's what I wanted to do, to write a book about that great place about which so many people uh, have no idea. The fact is, it can be very dangerous. Obviously, there's a war just about every 10 years in Israel. But at the same time, when there's no fighting going on, which is, which is the vast majority of the time, you know, it's a safe, beautiful, fascinating place to visit. I can imagine it's reasonably safe. Um, is it uptight because of their location? Is there a tenseness in general? Yeah, I would say, I would say uptightness is more the word than tension because, you know, after the suicide bombing campaign, for instance, each restaurant charged its clients a small amount of money to help pay for the security guard at the entrance who would check to make sure no one's carrying a bomb. <laughs> so that can make some people pretty uptight, I guess, right? <laughs> that was the feeling I had in Israel. It's just there was a general uptightness, and it was unfortunate because beautiful people, but just a, a reality that kind of requires uptightness. Yeah, they're, they're suspicious. They're careful. They've learned that that pays. And to people who are not used to it, it can be very discomforting. And, of course, people always complain about the tight security measures on the Israeli airline El Al. And it is very obnoxious sometimes. But at the same time, people say, well, it is the safest airline in the world on its record. Um, so there's a price to pay for safety, and tension and uptightness comes with it, unfortunately. 
Now, when you're considering a two-week walk, I mean, reading your book, I thought, well, you had such a wealth of information about Israel through three decades of work there. You had, seems like you had friends in every town. That gave you a huge advantage. But could somebody who's a, a novice about Israel, who was a good traveler and, and was doing their reading and had the proper information, how realistic is that to do that, that hike, take two weeks and actually walk the coast of Israel? Well, I think it's very realistic. It's not a common hike, actually. You know, Israel is a country which enjoys its own geography, if you like. There are plenty of trails or hiking trails. There's one hiking trail that goes from the very north of the country throughout the entire country down to the south. It takes about two months, six weeks to two months to walk it. The trail I took along the coast is actually, strangely enough, not a well-traveled trail. Hmm. I mean, people don't really do that. But actually, I'm surprised, having done it, about how beautiful it is and how actually unprepared a lot of the coast is to receive tourists. I mean, I went through small towns where there wasn't anywhere to stay at all. And then I ended up sleeping on the beach, which actually I enjoy, but probably not everybody does. So there is an actual trail? Like, I mean, you go to England and you have a trail, you know, along Hadrian's Wall or something like this. There's actually a trail along the coast of Israel? Uh, no, there isn't. You know, I just followed the beach. Right. And there are many places where you can't walk. About 30% of the coast, you can't actually walk along the beach because of the docks, the ports, uh, army installations, navy places, so and security installations. So there's a lot of zigzagging. And probably it's not really convenient for someone to say, I'm going to walk the whole coast of Israel, as I did. But it's certainly large parts of it which you can walk. And it's all sandy beaches with nice little cafes and restaurants along the way. And, of course, normally they end up in a nice town. Uh, so it's a very pleasant thing to do. Hmm. But i got to say, I wouldn't recommend anyone do it when I did it. I was going to do it in sort of February, March, early spring. But because of NBC, I was traveling all over the place, so I only got to it in the summer. It was incredibly hot and very tiring, and I wish I'd done it 25 years ago when I was that much younger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking with Martin Fletcher, and his uh, we know him from his work at NBC as a foreign correspondent. For 30 years, he's reported mostly from the Middle East, and his new book is Walking Israel, Personal Search for the Soul of a Nation. Martin spent two weeks walking 100 and some miles down the coast, and you know, I bet this was a chance for you to really meet kind of the salt-of-the-earth Israeli people. And I've always been charmed by the nickname for them. They call each other Sabra. Do you know about that story? Yeah, of course. But the fruit, um, prickly on the outside and soft and sweet on the inside. You know, I would say it's more like prickly on the outside and uh, less prickly on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what fruit that would be, but uh, it's kind of a nice, uh, a nice image, that cactus fruit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's the people that have such a harsh history that uh, you mentioned in your book, you know, a stranger will break the ice by asking, so how did your family survive the Holocaust? Uh, I mean, that's just hard to imagine. Yeah, that's true. And that really did happen to me. You know, I was in a room full of strangers, and they, you know, we were beginning to break the ice. And the question that went around was, was exactly that. So, you know, how did your family survive the Holocaust? <laughs> and everybody went around the, the table mm. giving their story. And, and there's a real message to that too, isn't there, of course, that first of all, it's a very unifying Mm -hmm. question. Yeah. You know, it's not like how much do you earn or what do you do, you know, which immediately divides you into a hierarchy, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. That question. But how did you survive the Holocaust? You're all in the same boat at the same time. So it's a very unifying question. Well, their whole existence since, what, 1947 has been making a case for their legitimacy there and then defending it. You talked about that Zionist slogan, which I found quite poignant, a people without land for a land without people. Yeah, it's poignant, apart from the fact that there were plenty of people living there <laughs> who they ignored, unfortunately. Yeah, the reality is quite, was, that was rather different. But the fact is that it was a very powerful slogan at a time when, when Jews had nowhere to go, and many Jews literally did have nowhere to go. And, and now they're, they're living among the uh, vacated homes of uh, Palestinians who used to live there, isn't that right? Um, to some extent, yeah, certainly in the early days. Less, less so today, but certainly in the early days, uh, many of the Jews who came from the Holocaust to Palestine, as it was before 48, um, lived in homes abandoned by the Arabs. And, of course, the issue today is that the Arabs, in many cases, want their homes back one day. And so the conflict continues. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Martin Fletcher. We know Martin Fletcher from his work as an NBC foreign correspondent who's reported from the Middle East for 30 years. Martin, as I was reading your book, I stumbled upon Elia Aviv'i. I stayed with Elia Vivi back in 1975, and I dug out my journal and I read this entry because you had an experience with Elia Vivi also, and uh, I just want to read this to you. This is what I'd, I I'd love to hear it. This is what I wrote in my journal as a kid traveling through Israel in 1975, July 10. 
We checked out of our hostel and headed north. We tried hitching for a while, but the soldiers always get picked up first, and that competition was too stiff for us. We ended up on a bus with a bunch of kids from a kibbutz. The bus dropped us in Nazareth, Jesus' childhood hometown. We wandered around and decided that Nazareth wasn't uh, what it used to be. From there, we bust to the coast, where we met some guys who suggested we stay at Ashziv. It was run by a strangely charismatic man named Eli Avivi. The property, which once housed Arabs, was now Eli Avivi's, and he had set up a kind of kingdom, which he declared was an independent country, Ashziv land. We walked through the gates of this tiny land and found an old, rundown mansion lit only by candles and with a bunch of people on the rooftop. A girl who looked like the queen of Eliavivi's harem came to the edge of the roof and hollered down a welcome. A guy came out with a candle and a box of matches. He explained, you can do anything you want here as long as you don't disturb other people. We paid him the equivalent of $3, and he took us to an old kind of stone shelter with lots of rooms, straw-filled mattresses, and graffiti all over the walls. We picked a fairly nice spot, which is little more than a cave, and lit our candle. Picnicking for dinner on the beach that evening, we could actually hear the bombs from the war. We were very close to the Lebanon border. The beaches here were under very tight security and constantly being scanned by searchlights. When it was time to return to our cave, we passed crazy Elia Vivi in his tiny swim trunks. We said goodnight, and he said shalom. <laughs> I love it. I love that. And you met him in 2010 or something. What, what is he like now? He was that old hedonistic hippie with all these girls hanging out and lots of uh, nude bathing and everything. Oh, man, you'd give me so many things to talk about. with that. <laughs> with what, that's a wonderful entry. First of all, let me tell you that those hitchhikers who got the lift before you did. Right. So when I was there in 74, I picked one of them up, and she's still my wife. <laughs> my goodness. You were there the year before I was trying to get a ride. All right. <laughs> so that's what happens if you, if you give them a ride. So she became my wife. She was, okay. My wife, she was a soldier in the Israeli army, and very beautiful. So, of course, I hit the brakes and we're still married. Really? I fell in, in love with an Israeli draft dodger that same year. <laughs> and uh, she was one of these hippie young Israeli girls that actually fled Israel to avoid the draft and then went back home. And I met her just outside of there in, in Haifa. But uh, I think after this interview, we should call each other up and swap <laughs> notes. <laughs> you mentioned the uh, Elia Vivi creating the independent state of Avivistan. Yeah. He called Avivi land, rather. Okay. And yeah. the Palestinians at the time, they joked that Elia Vivi got independence before they did. <laughs> oh my! Well, he was very into his independence there because, as that guy mentioned, you can do anything you want here as long as it doesn't bother other people. And Israelis did go there because in, in the 50s, he, he first went there in the early 50s. And at that time, Israelis really didn't have any money to go abroad. They didn't have passports. So they used to go to his place, which became like this alternative lifestyle, naked bathing in the beach and loads of people. When I, when I spoke with him, he told me that he had a thousand girlfriends and took pictures of them all naked. And he invited me to see his... Uh, his photo album, <laughs> which I declined. Are backpackers still hanging out and, and uh, camping on his beachfront property there? Yeah, yeah. It's still a very famous, well-known place to, to go for the weekend. But, you know, it's not really all a funny story because the houses that he's living in are literally the abandoned homes of Arabs who ran away to South Lebanon in 1948. And uh, I asked him about that, and he said that, you know, some of those Palestinians who ran away, some of them are still do live in the area and sometimes come to visit. And you mentioned that you used to pay $3 to stay there. Mm -hmm. Today, you've got to pay 20 shekels, which is about $7 to visit the national park nearby. And I, and I said to him, isn't it a bit strange that the Arabs who used to live here have to pay 20 shekels to come visit? And he said, well, no, not really. If they used to live here. They only pay half price. Oh, my goodness. Well, there's, <laughs> that's Eliavivi land for you. <laughs> I thought there's a rather tone-deaf way of looking at it. Really? Didn't he say, didn't he make a comment you wrote about in your book that there's Arabs in, in the parliament, in the Knesset, and one day they're going to take it over through peaceful means? Yeah, he, he did say that. And, and, of course, by the way, he's echoing what many Arabs say themselves, actually, which is that one day, that's one of the things I learned on my journey down the coast. You know, one million of, of the citizens of Israel are Arabs, about 20% of the population. And one thing they always say is that something will happen. One day, something will happen and we'll take our country back. The Jews will go, we'll get our country back. So although wow. it sounds like right-wing xenophobia when Elia Vivi says it, actually, it does reflect a certain reality. So that's that concept of the, quote, enemy within? Well, it's a very delicate situation because although the million Arabs are there and, and talk in those terms about, quote, something will happen, nevertheless, I would never, quote, they are not the enemy within. I mean, for the most part, they're loyal citizens of Israel, definitely of a second-class status to some extent. But even when, even when they've reached positions of success economically, educationally, they still are somewhat apart. But they're not the enemy. They're just citizens 
in many cases, disadvantaged citizens trying to make the best of their life in their country. And it's much like immigrants in the United States. They may be, in, in a lot of senses, second-class citizens, but they're the first ones to have an American flag hanging from their shop window. And uh, you wrote in your book how these uh, Israeli Arabs are, in many cases, more loyal to the state of Israel than Israeli Jews themselves. Well, that, that was a specific few people I met who had an extremely interesting story that really did draw back some of the layers of society, showing how, how you can't take every stereotype for, for granted. But in general, I wouldn't for a moment say that Israeli Arabs, even a large number of them, are more loyal than, the, than Israeli Jews. But they're not the enemy within. They're not the fifth column. They're just a minority group trying to make the best of a not very good situation for themselves. And that's probably a very good example of how you can take these very complicated and confusing issues and, and find a little more clarity if you actually travel there and, and talk to the people you meet on the beach or in the villages. No, absolutely. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to look at situations with, with which I was familiar from a fresh point of view. You know, take the time, walk slowly, meet new kinds of people, and understand familiar issues in a much deeper way. And I have to say, I felt th that I succeeded. You know, I went down the coast visited each community and dealt with issues which I normally, as a news reporter, never deal with. When I did come across issues like, for instance, I was in, in Ashkelon when, when Israel suddenly went to war with Hamas in Gaza. Normally, I would, I would report that as a news reporter. The bombs are falling here, so many dead, so many injured, you know. But because I was in this mode of writing the book, um, I went to the one cafe every day for three weeks and spent the entire war with a group of people inside the cafe most of whom, by the way, were Jews from Arab countries, um, and saw the entire conflict through their eyes, which I wrote about in one of the chapters. And I learned so much. And I must say, you know, I think that although I've been a reporter now for, I really don't want to say how long, but, but let's say 40 years, about 30 years of which I've actually been living in the Middle East, I, I really feel that this was the best reporting I've done in this book. And I don't say that just to sell the book, but I mean, for me, it was a wonderful experience to pull back, slow down, walk the coast, which took two weeks. Then I spent a year researching the issues and the people and the places. You know, I think it was the, by far the deepest reporting I've done. It's interesting you say that because I spent two weeks with a public television film crew in Iran. And the things I learned, not dealing with, you know, terrorism and uh, Israel and Baha'is and Jews and gays issues, but just learning about what makes the people tick, I humanized that country and, and learned far more than I, I think I've learned in watching 100 years of Ted Koppel and, and Nightline. Thank you for not mentioning Martin Fletcher in that list. We continue walking south toward Gaza, exploring the coast of Israel with Martin Fletcher. There's more just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Martin Fletcher really knows Israel. He's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. In his book, Walking Israel, Martin describes his discovery of another Israel, everyday Israel, when he took time off to meet the people while exploring the country's 100-mile coast by foot. Martin, uh, what's your work situation now? I, sort of, I resigned from NBC News a year ago in order to write more, uh, more books. And I'm still on, working on contract with NBC. Okay. But I, but I also saw the book as a sort of, you know, cr crossing the T on my time in Israel. It is fascinating to think that what, what you mentioned a moment ago, that you feel like some of the most important reporting you've ever done was basically giving an intimate look at Israel that's not war-torn, but just the communities living along the coastline. Yeah, I, I felt that we always report, gave a very partial view of Israel through 
focusing on the conflict, and I wanted to make some contribution to showing that you know it's a great place where actually seventy percent of the population live along the coastal plain, and we hardly ever mention them in news reports because we focus on the occupation, the settlements, and the conflict. Martin, reading your book, Walking Israel, and knowing about your passion for not only reporting the news from hot spots, as you did for so many years, but just understanding a people, I was considering the work of Mort Rosenblum, another foreign correspondent, and uh, he's written a book, a couple of books recently, one of them, Escaping Plato's Cave, talking about the economic challenge of just the whole notion of foreign correspondence these days and how economic cutting back is actually uh, making journalism a little less thorough from a foreign correspondent's point of view. What's your take on that? Well, he's right. I mean, the economic considerations and also, by the way, the declining American interest may be, in terms of the audience, in matters foreign. I mean, NBC News, for instance, in Israel, we used to have 17 staff people. Um, Now we're down to two. CBS is down from 17 to one freelance person working from home, and ABC went down to one person who's now gone to London. So right there with the three American networks, there's a dramatic collapse in the um, numbers of people covering the country. It's just, I'm just talking about Israel. Wow. And obviously there's, there's a concurrent suffering in terms of the ability to really understand the country. You know, we send people in to report the news, but they can't possibly have the depth of someone, for instance, like me, who's been there for so long. And that's the same story worldwide. So what are the consequences then from a consumer of news when you have all the networks cutting back so dramatically on the number of people they actually have in the field? I think people are ill-served. They'll have less understanding and less, not only in terms of quantity, in terms of how many stories are there from overseas, and not only in, in network television, but also many, many newspapers have cut back. They've cut their bureaus. The bureaus that continue have fewer people. They rely more on local sources. But at the same time, there's a change in the information flow, we're beginning to rely more on local people uh, using Facebook, Twitter, cell phones, different ways of conveying information. But, you know, our role has been as a sort of, you know, the educated gatekeeper, the analyst who puts things in context. And you, sh- in theory anyway, would trust uh, the reporter who's working for a network or a major newspaper to be telling you pretty closely to the, the truth. But if you're getting information from, say, inside Iran, from an Iranian with a cell phone, and then an Iranian Facebook group telling you what's going on. Well, it may be great, and it may be just disinformation from the Savak, from the secret police. You don't know who's giving you that information. So I think for the consumer's point of view, it's very hard to know what the real source of information is and how reliable it is today. And I think that's a great threat to our understanding of the world. So as a society, we're, we're frankly cheaping out on, on international news coverage, and most people probably don't even realize it. The question really is is whether people care, because if they did care, then probably the networks and everybody else would change their economic model. Now, I was thinking it might just be harsh economics. It's really expensive to pay for a good-looking anchor woman, and the money's got to come from somewhere. Why don't you just fire a few correspondents? <laughs> well, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> I mean, it seems absurd what an anchor person gets and how they're cutting back. You lose 10, 10 people in the field. Or probably 50. Yeah, you know the salaries of the network anchor people, they range up to between 8 and 15, 16 million dollars a year per person for his salary. Is that more than what you were receiving? I mean, it's, lud- it's ludicrous. <laughs> we can run an entire foreign network on just one man's salary. But from a business point of view, they'll cut loose the entire foreign network in order to have the most uh, convincing, eye-friendly anchor person. Well, you know, that's American business. And I don't think we can, uh, we can really blame journalism or even journalist managers. You know, that's the American media is a commercial business, has become a commercial business. Yep. And that's how you make money. It's very unfortunate. Okay, so what you're saying is news is entertainment. I'm not saying that you did it, but I certainly would, I would agree with you if you said it and, and, <laughs> to an extent. I wouldn't go all the way and say that because there's a lot of very serious news coverage, but it's the entertainment part of it that really seems to grab the viewers and keep them. I think it's a very dangerous trend, and I'm very concerned about it. And I'm thankful for the work that that you've done and your commitment to helping us understand complicated issues in these far corners of our planet. Yeah, thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Martin Fletcher, who for 30 years has been a foreign correspondent working for NBC News. And his book is called Walking Israel, A Personal Search for the Soul of a Nation. Now, when you live in these communities as you hike and you connect with the locals, um, I understand Israel is quite a young population, What's the, the young generation's opinion of the military in that society? Because it's a, it's a huge part of the economy and, and people's lives is just the necessary military aspect of Israel. 
Yeah, I did spend one chapter writing about the the Israeli army, not from the point of view of what it did, the battles, the wars, but from the point of view of what's it like today for young Israelis, boys and girls, um, young men and women who who need to go into the army. You know, Israel is one of the few Western countries where kids are still conscripted. Um, boys do three years, girls do two years. And I asked them, the, I wanted to analyze that question, what do they actually feel about it? Because Israel used to be a country fighting for its survival, and therefore... There was, it was easily understood why you had to go into the, into the military. But today, Israel survived. Now it's more a matter of what kind of country it will be. And so to tell young people, you've got to spend three years of your life in the army, if you're a boy, is increasingly a hard sell. Hmm. The defense minister, El Barak, said a, a year ago that the army's become the army of only half the nation, meaning that half the kids of army age actually don't do the army, either because they're Arabs or ultra-Orthodox or for other reasons. And so that's a very important issue. If you're a conscientious objector or just a person that doesn't want to serve, how do you get out of military service in Israel where supposedly everybody is supposed to serve? It used to be tough and you used to get very stigmatized and it would harm your future role in Israeli society. Right. Today, it's not so tough. You really don't get stigmatized and it matters only in certain parts of Israeli life. So in other words, it's, it's, it's more accepted today to actually try to get out of the army and, and many people do. Another issue is about 15% of soldiers leave the army before their three years is over. And in fact, in the, in the book, in the chapter on this subject, I followed one young man who'd spent 18 months in the army. He was a medic, a, a commando. He'd be fighting in Gaza. And he just felt, I've had enough. And so he went to the psychologist and said, I want to leave the army. Then he went to another social worker, the psychiatrist, and uh, persuaded them that he didn't need to be in the army. And the last question they asked was not to him, but they called his mother. <laughs> huh. They called the Jewish mother and said, do you want your son to leave the army? She said yes, and so the army said to the boy, you can leave the army. So it was a process that was fairly difficult, but ultimately he left the army. And the, the real point of my story following him in the book was that he lied throughout the entire process. And I thought he was going to end up in jail, but actually he ended up out of the army as he wanted. Wow. So I guess it's just a natural sort of development. as It's the equivalent in the United States as the great generation and the Pearl Harbor survivors pass away, we have less of a connection with that part of our history. And as the people who actually suffered through the Holocaust pass away, there's no living memory of that in a few more years. And uh, you'll lose that sort of empathy and passion for that in Israel. I think so. Another one of the chapters was about the Holocaust, Israel's attitudes towards the Holocaust survivors. And today, even in Israel, the Holocaust is a history lesson for young kids in, you know, 7, 8, 10, 12, 15 years old. It's just part of a history lesson, which sometimes they're interested in and sometimes they're not. It's a, you know, it's a great challenge to keep the, the memory of that alive. And probably very frustrating for the old people who remembered it, actually. Of course, the kibbutz movement is changing. It used to be a powerhouse in the social fabric of Israel. Uh, how is the idealism of kibbutzim changing? Well, it's a thing of the past, actually, the idealism. The, the fact is that most kibbutzim went bankrupt or became close to bankruptcy, and in order to save themselves, to continue to exist, they privatized. So the old image we have of the kibbutzim, of the this socialist ideology, and young men and women in short shorts and city hats dancing in the banana groves with yeah. their guns, you know, <laughs> that's all a thing of the past. Today, it's mostly factories. They sell their land to outsiders who, who come and live on the kibbutz. But the, on the other hand, they saved the kibbutz. The kibbutz was threatened with bankruptcy, okay. and I followed the story of one in particular. But nevertheless, today, um, they saved themselves by getting rid of all those things like kindergarten for everybody, everybody sharing the same clothes, you know, one car for the kibbutz, right. and making it a, a more privatized commercial capitalist enterprise, which today is very successful again, but is not really a kibbutz. It's a kibbutz in name only. Who was it? Gorbachev that went down there, toured a kibbutz, and said, boy, this is what it's supposed to be like. <laughs> did you, did you ever My wife's grandfather came from Russia in 1917 and helped found the second kibbutz in Israel. It was the utopia the Soviet Union was, was looking for, and they had it in the kibbutz system in Israel. Yeah, and they both collapsed. And they both collapsed. <laughs> so I guess there's a lesson right there. I'm speaking with Martin Fletcher, and Martin is uh, 30 years a correspondent for NBC News, reporting from the Middle East, and his book is Walking Israel, the story of his two-week hike from the top to the bottom of Israel along the Mediterranean coastline. Martin, I'm just fascinated by the, the sort of finale of your walk. You came finally to the south edge of Israel, to the border of Gaza, and you stood there 
under those surveillance zeppelins, looking across the barricades at the haze of Gaza City. Tell me what you thought when you were there, and, and what did you hope? What I thought was, to be honest with you, thank God I reached the end of this walk. <laughs> I want to go home. <laughs> That's actually what I was thinking. But at the same time, I've been so many times into Gaza, and it was very interesting to see it from that perspective on the beach. You know, where it's so beautiful. It's an abandoned, long, sandy, beautiful beach that people don't use because it's a little bit too dangerous, a little bit too close to the border. And I was just thinking of the contrast between the beauty of the place and the menace of the place as well. And actually, when I started to take photographs, within minutes, I was surrounded by Israeli soldiers who deleted the pictures from my camera, um, which was a reminder that, beautiful as it is, it's a very sensitive place. And as I stood there, I realized after 30 to 35 years of reporting from Israel on one level, now after only two weeks walking and talking to people, I was reaching another level of understanding of the place that made me love the place even more. And I couldn't wait to get back and go meet all those people again and get further into the, I guess, the fabric, the real context of the mosaic of what Israel really is, not just a country at war, but a wonderful place struggling with the issues of survival and what kind of country it would be. Martin Fletcher, author of Walking Israel, thank you so much for taking us to Israel and giving us a better understanding. Thanks. Thanks very much, Rick. Shalom. Shalom, shalom, Rick. You don't have to write for a newspaper or be a TV reporter to get up close to another culture and its people. Willie Weir has found that traveling on a bicycle is a great way to slow down and get acquainted with our world. And it can result in some amusing stories. Willie was our first guest on Travel with Rick Steves when we started the program back in 2005. And he joins us from time to time to tell us about his latest adventures. We've asked him to share more of his travel tales with us as a sort of postcard from the road, from his adventures on two wheels. I call it the gamble, purposefully aiming to be in between guaranteed lodging at around sunset. You know, for as much as I like the comfort and affordability of guest houses in Thailand, when you pay for lodging, your relationship is client first and guest second. When you carry a tent on a bicycle journey, all you truly need is a four by six foot patch of flat ground. Kat and I began looking for that flat patch soon after we were passed by a speeding Toyota pickup with an elephant in the back, our first double take in Thailand. Our what-was-that-about reaction was soon answered by another speeding truck filled with teak logs, tree poachers. The small secondary road wound through the forest and farmland, a mixture of bamboo, rice fields, and second-growth teak. The sun was low and the light was approaching the level when mosquitoes rise to feast on those without lodging. We came to the edge of this small village. Most parcels were fenced off and our options, well, they were running out. We passed this couple standing outside their home, and the woman smiled at us. Next door was a tamarind tree orchard. We stopped and we asked if we could pitch our tent under the trees. They indicated that the land wasn't theirs, but belonged to this old man next door. He was thin and slightly hunched over, and he was blind in one eye. He had just arrived home and parked his bike around the back of the simple wooden house. He showed us where we could pitch our tent, and led us through the house to the bath and the toilet where we bathed using a bucket. We crawled into our tent and wondered if we'd seen the last of him. But the smell of smoke and the glow of fire drew us out. He was seated outside on a wooden bench next to a table, and his wife sat nearby in a stool. A couple of boys showed up, fascinated with our bicycles, and then the neighbors dropped by. The old man sat down on the bench, and then he sat down right next to me. His breath was sweet and smelled of sticky rice. He talked to me, although I did not understand a word, and he felt my arms in a gentle manner, like someone inspecting a, a prized horse. And then he put his strong hand on my shoulder, and he massaged it. I was taken aback, for that is the exact way my father touches me when I come home to visit. 
When I was in high school, it made me uncomfortable. Dad, that's just weird. And later I tolerated it. But looking at this stranger's face in this small village in Thailand, I felt embraced without being hugged. I felt, for lack of better words, in touch. We sat out by the fire for hours. We sang a bit, coaxed on by a neighbor who was on her second bottle of Thai whiskey. She sang a chorus of what sounded like an old folk song. I sang a chorus from the musical The Fantastics, and she laughed after every phrase, which made everybody else laugh, including me. Laughter is the perfect universal language. I don't think we speak it often enough. A young girl dropped by, and she spoke some English, and we learned that our hosts were childless and had lived in the village all their lives. After many attempts, we finally understood the old man's joke that if I relieved myself during the night, his tamarinds would be that much sweeter. The fire finally died, the neighbors said their goodbyes, and Cat and I retired to our tent. The next morning we rose with the sun. The old man greeted us and gave us a bag of freshly cooked sticky rice. And then he gave me a hug, the first I'd received in Thailand. I looked at that old man. I didn't even know his name. We didn't share a language. We barely had anything close to what you'd call a conversation. Yet in those brief moments around the fire, I came to understand my own father's touch. And an old man, well, he got to feel what it was like to have a son. สงครามเชียงใหม่นั้นตรึงตราใจฉันมันนมสาวช่างสุขสันเขาเพลิดเพลินทั้งวันรดน้ำให้กันฉันเที่ยวดูเจอสาวหนึ่ง Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York for their production help today. We also get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can chat with Rick and his guests. Simply add your email address to the Sign Me Up link, and that's in the radio section of our website. That way we can notify you of our next recording sessions and topics. You'll find many interviews from past editions of the show arranged by the countries we discuss, plus Rick's European walking tours. They're available to download your portable player or smartphone. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe links on the front page of our website at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for France, Paris, Provence and the Riviera, and Rick's French phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for France and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.